This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Now with a brand new theme, welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And yes, it's a theme for our times, PK, isn't it? As is the major story this week, really, which is the Prime Minister's Cabinet reshuffle, finally. The PM forced into it because of allegations of sexual assault and the handling of these embroiling two of his Cabinet Ministers, the Attorney-General Christian Porter and the Defence Minister Linda Reynolds. They've lost those jobs in this reshuffle, as we knew they would, but they remain in Cabinet as we thought they would. And women are, on the face of it, certainly the big winners in the reshuffle. Michaela Cash is Australia's new Attorney-General. And the big surprise is Karen Andrews has been promoted from Ministry for Industry and Science to the mega portfolio of Home Affairs because Peter Dutton has moved out of there to take over from Linda Reynolds in defence. And the Prime Minister's big message around this whole reshuffle, Patricia, was it's all about putting women front and centre of my govern. That's what he said. He's promoted another woman so that the numbers of women in his cabinet are back up to seven, which is where he started off when he took over as PM. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk more about the signal of this, the impact of it all with David Crowe a little later. David's the chief political correspondent with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. But PK, let's talk about the, the headline announcement from Scott Morrison, which came as part of this reshuffle, which is the creation of a women's cabinet task force to respond to issues of women's equality, safety, health and economic security. Is this a big idea? Is it a good idea? Is it going to bring change? I think it's an idea that has potential merit and huge potential. But of course, like anything, the proof will be in the delivery, right? Uh, it will be in what this manages to achieve. So it's not necessarily a bad idea, but it did give me the sense that the Prime Minister had perhaps, and, and this was, I think, a little bit of a problem with some of the language he used around handing it all over to the women. Um, he's going to co-chair this special uh, cabinet committee with Maurice Payne, the Minister for Women. And Don't you mean the Prime Minister for Women? Correct, right? So he called her, she'll be like, effectively like the Prime Minister for Women. It was really a poor line, which he clearly realised mid-press conference when, you know, people were clearly going nuts about he, it. He kind of said, look, it was a bad pun, right? Yeah, Basically, didn't yeah he? he did. Because the reason it was bad was... It implied, mm, let's just uh, do some brainstorming here. What did he then become? Did he? Did the he then become for men? That's, that's that's the that was the issue. Now, Fran, look, we did have Tony Abbott, who actually made himself the minister for women, and I think I can very comfortably say that I don't think he's been one of the nation's best ministers for women. So the PM doesn't want to go down that road, right? Men sort of mm. talking for women or knowing what women need. He wants the women to be at the centre of that decision making. And I do, I, I respect that as a concept, but what I do think we need to be careful about is that men don't end up, you know, making it women's business, women's problem, because this problem that's been identified, which is real, is actually, if I can be blunt, kind of men's problem. <laughs> like it's their 
kind of issue. <laughs> they need to fix this themselves. A little bit of bit of looking at oneself uh, has to happen. So that's the only kind of potential flaw. But back to what this will do. Maurice Payne heads it, but she's also the Minister for Foreign Affairs, which is a very big mm. portfolio. So, yeah, okay, I, I, I personally, and I said it on Insiders, think that just a single minister for women would have been good, just for someone to be solely dedicated to that. In and, the Cabinet. Yeah, I think that would have been a better way forward. But, you know, having said that, Maurice Payne is a very capable person. Yes, she's been a bit missing in action, I think, when it comes to her public appearances, and she's been criticised for that. But by all accounts that I hear, internally she's very active. Maybe we just don't see enough of that. Then the Social Services Minister, Anne Rustin, will become the, the Minister for Women's Safety. Jane Hume becomes the Minister for Women's Economic Security on top of her other responsibilities. And then, controversially, because it's become a bit of an issue, Amanda Stoker becomes the Assistant Minister, not only for the Attorney-General, but also for women. She's become a bit controversial because this week Grace Tame, the Australian of the Year, criticised her for some support she's given to a very controversial figure. And that's become a bit of a problematic issue, I think, for the government too, Fran. Well, it's become another side story and another distraction from the headline that, as we've said, the Prime Minister wants to make us all about, I've got the most number of women in my cabinet and now I've got this Women's Council, effectively, this task force. But to be honest, PK, when you, you drill down into that, I mean, I think there is a fair degree of spin here, hello, revelation, because, yes, it's probably a great thing for these women to sit around as a task force with the Federal Treasurer and the Finance Minister running the rule or running the lens, if, as it was said, over women's policy. But these are the same women who were in the room anyway. These are cabinet ministers who are in this task force. So nothing really much has changed there in terms of the presence, the personalities. It's all about how they then use their influence, how they use their collective voice, I guess, to concentrate the minds, uh, their minds first, and then concentrate the minds of the other cabinet ministers around the table and have an effect. At the press conference, both the PM and the Minister for Women, though, talked about this female lens idea, bringing this lens to government decision-making. Okay, good. But just a couple of days later, one of those you mentioned there, Jane Hume, who's the new Minister for Women's Economic Security, she said something like, she doesn't think you can put a gender lens on the budget in May. And to me, that just undercut the whole message from Maurice Payne. I mean, isn't that precisely what we're talking about doing here is putting that lens over everything and you've got to start with economic policy. You've got to start with the budget. The government was criticised for doing exactly the opposite of that last time around. And now here's the minister mm. who's apparently responsible for it saying, oh, well, no, we don't need to do that. I don't get it. I, I don't get it either. And Again, the first point I think I made, and it's the only and most important point, is you've got your task force now, you've got your announcement, you've got your spin. Okay, I totally get what the Prime Minister was trying to do. I, you know, I give him a pass for effort trying to create a sort of infrastructure around his government to try mm -hmm. and do something. Yeah, rearrange the chairs yeah. so they're more productive. That's yeah. the idea. Yeah, right. Now, what are you going to do with it and when? because there's a sense of urgency around this. So first order of business obviously has to be responding to the existing Kate Jenkins sexual harassment uh, report and trying to action that immediately. 35 recommendations, do them all, do them quickly, I would say. And then there are other issues that they can work on with state and territory governments. I spoke to Susan Lee, who's the Minister for Environment, but she does represent Maurice Payne in the lower house on issues of women. She's a senior cabinet woman who will be in this, this task force. And she says they need to do work around the fact that 
very few perpetrators are brought to justice for sexual assaults. Now, of course, that's in state and territory jurisdictions, but the federal government can show leadership on these issues, can work on these issues around consent and laws and the way that uh, the laws clearly are stacked against women. And Mm. I've spoken to men in the Morrison government who tell me they now see it this way. They increasingly see it this way. Well, how can you not see it? I mean, the, the I know, it's really obvious, but they haven't the, always said this. They haven't been alive to this. But now I feel like there has been a shift that people are yeah. like, oh, this is a problem for us. Well, there's a women's uh, state and territory and federal ministers uh, meeting coming up, I think, over the next week. So that will have a look at this particular issue. There's also a parliamentary inquiry report coming out uh, in the next day or so that will also put a lens on law reform and how that impacts on the safety of women. So that's good timing too. The government has announced there will be a national women's summit looking at women's safety. That's got to include and has its centrepiece, I think, law reform and funding for women's legal services and support services. So it's very much much in the ether right now. The government's just got to bring it home. Now, the other part of this reshuffle that the Prime Minister announced is the retention of two very controversial ministers, Christian Porter and Linda Reynolds. They are effectively demoted in so much as they don't have very flashy portfolios anymore, right? Like the Attorney General Christian Porter, the former, sorry, Attorney General Christian Porter loses the chief lawmaker role of the country, loses industrial relations, but he does stay in Cabinet and becomes Science and Industry Minister. And at the same time, Linda Reynolds, famous for the quote of calling Brittany Higgins, the alleged rape victim from her own office, a lying cow, not about the allegation, but still pretty inflammatory language that she's apologised for. She also stays in Cabinet. That, I thought, was a pretty controversial decision by the Prime Minister, Fran. It also means that because they stay on as ministers, the questions surrounding them don't go away. And, in fact, when they start popping their heads up, if they do, I think they're going to be rather quiet for a while, but it's going to be difficult for them to keep in those roles. Yeah, I think two things there. Uh, There was no way I think the Prime Minister was going to drop a woman from his cabinet, so Linda Reynolds was saved in that way. But also the big signal, everyone close to the Prime Minister and those in his party room say that loyalty is a big thing for him. He makes a big deal of it and he is signalling very strongly to his his ministers that he will stand by them. The flip side of that is they stand by him and do the right thing. Loyalty is a two-way street. No Prime Minister ever wants to give up a scalp and he's not going to, but I think it's, I think you're right. I think particularly with Christian Porter sitting on the front bench, it will allow Labor to direct questions at him when Parliament resumes in Budget Week. Um, They were planning on targeting him if he came back as Attorney General. I can't imagine they're going to give that up easily, so we'll just have to see how this goes for the Prime Minister. But it might have been better for the Coalition, better for the Prime Minister if... Christian Porter had when he had that press conference and then later announced he was going to move into defamation proceedings against the ABC if at that point he'd said it's appropriate now that I move to the backbench to concentrate on that. But he hasn't done that. He's dug in and this is where we find ourselves. This is where we find ourselves in the podcast too. A perfect opportunity to bring our guest in. I think so. David Crow is the chief political correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and uh, a guest at our COVID safe party. Welcome. Great to be back with you here. David, it's always great to have you at the party, any party. You're a 
absolute boon to a party. <laughs> That's the sort of guy you are, party animal. PK and I have just been talking about yet another cabinet reshuffle, a lot of new titles created all with the word women in them. Actually, though, no more women in numbers in the cabinet than when Scott Morrison started off his prime ministership mm. and most of the faces have been there for a while. So what is this reshuffled cabinet, you know, meant to achieve in reality and is it going to do it? I think it's a reasonable start in trying to turn things around after weeks and weeks of just totally mishandling the issue of the treatment of women. And it does represent an upgrade for some of the key women in the cabinet. They get better status. I think the task force that's been created, which is led by Scott Morrison, but also Maurice Payne, is actually quite a good idea. I mean, I think there's a lot of cynicism about it. and We'll have to see whether it delivers any results. But it's actually a good idea to get those ministers all together, all the women in the ministry together, with Morrison, with the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and with the Finance Minister, uh, Simon Birmingham, to produce some policy results. Yeah, David, it feels like there's been a lot of discussion about how sexism and misogyny impacts women working in Parliament and the staffers, the politicians... But this is something that's actually been strongly felt by women across Australia. How long does Scott Morrison have to make this reshuffle, you know, produce some work to address violence against women, to get a response to the Respect at Work report, to actually demonstrate, that's what I was saying to Fran a little earlier talking alone, to demonstrate that they're serious about this, that it's not just a good announcement? I reckon about six weeks between now and the budget. That's when they've got to show that they've got some ideas, not just a, a different structure of who's in the cabinet. I think they need to bring in women from other parts of the party room as well. Uh, they've got good women who are on the backbench who are brave enough to speak out, like Bridget Archer, who was mm. the first Liberal to say, I'll go to the March for Justice. They've got people who are impatient for some action and they're within the the Liberal and National Party room. So I think they should, they've got to draw on, on that energy. So one thing they're going to be doing within about a week is responding to the Respect at Work report on sexual harassment in the workplace. Now, it's been a, a long wait. It's been one year. It's ridiculous that it's taken them that long to have a response. But finally, they've got the message and they're going to have that response, I think, after Easter. That's step one. There's a meeting of... Um, federal and state ministers on women's safety. That then clears the way for negotiations about the next national plan on prevention of violence against women. That's another step. These things are getting underway. They're talking about economic security for women. It's not clear what that means, but it means basically it raises expectations that Jane Hume, who now has women's economic security added to her title in the ministry, has to come up with policies in the federal budget. Now, these are going to cost money and they have to have real commitments. Otherwise, it'll just be seen as a marketing exercise and, and voters will turn away. So, David, all of this action, let's hope it unfolds because it's needed and it's good stuff and it's putting women up in lights. And while the PM's busy doing that this week, then we get Andrew Lamming, Liberal backbencher with allegations coming out against him in the last week of social media bullying against women, harassment of women, taking a photo of a woman when she's bent over. You can see her underwear. In fact, that woman has now gone to the Queensland police with her complaint. He says it's all spin put out on these complaints from women. But his own colleagues are pretty fed up. I mean, we saw... Senator Sarah Henderson and Katie Allen on Insider saying they were disgusted calling him f for him to leave politics. He's announced he's going to quit politics, but until then, he's going to sit in the party room after he finishes his empathy course. Let's have a listen. The common thread of what we've um, experienced, and certainly what I have, 
is that I'm not demonstrating really an understanding of how my actions affect other people. That's Andrew Lamming speaking on 7 News. So he's been sent off to do an empathy course, David. Are empathy courses the answer? What is an empathy course? And is this really good enough? No, the, the answer is departure from the parliament. On current expectations, that takes a year, though, because everybody's been assuming that the early election is off the agenda and it'll, it's probably March next year. This could change that thinking, of course. But it's interesting that there are men as well as women in the Liberal and National Party room who are totally fed up with Andrew Lamming and some of them believe that he should leave the party room, that it's worth, I guess, the political risk of having him sitting on the crossbench. And it is an interesting scenario. The government seems to be fairly secure at the moment with Craig Kelly on the crossbench. He's promising supply and confidence to the government. It is intriguing as to whether Andrew Lamming, whether they would rely on his vote on supply and confidence, but have him out of the party room and on the crossbench. I know that there are Liberals who want that outcome, but it hasn't got to the point of public demands for him to leave the party room at the moment. Of course, there's also the scenario there where the government would have to think about election timing if its majority becomes, well, if it goes into minority government, basically. And that's when you get talk about an August or September election because it's just uh, untenable to go on without enough stability in the parliament. But this is the issue, isn't it? Here they are, right? And this is the juxtaposition. They're trying to reset on women, uh, the cabinet structure we talked about, uh, an infrastructure to try and deliver on women's needs in the community, but also with this second Kate Jenkins report to kind of overhaul the parliamentary system the staffers, the MPs, behaviour, consequences, all of it, right? Do all that. But at the same time, because it's in their political interests numerically on the House of, of the parliamentary floor, kind of retain this, this man who's shown a pattern of offensive behaviour towards women, but just also more broadly behaviour not befitting an MP in their party room and they're sort of holding on to him saying that this empathy training is going to fix it. Well, if you speak to experts, as I have, of, you know, men's behavioural change, it isn't just a sort of quick sort of course, you know, that you just call in and you get your certificate. This is actually big stuff. This is a really hard thing for them to continue to say is all right. I interviewed Trent Zimmerman, another Liberal backbencher, and he said he thinks that actually Lamming should go to the crossbench, that he can't sit in the Liberal Party room. So it's going to keep bubbling and becoming a problem for them, isn't it? It'll be a problem for them until the election, uh, that they will be tarnished by Lamming's behaviour. And there'll be there'll always be something else that Lamming says, or maybe does, that's going to cause them embarrassment. It's a basic political calculation. They're going to have to wear the damage from that for the sake of stability in the parliament. It's a cost they're just going to have to carry. David, how hard is Labor going to push this? I mean, we had the, Patricia mentioned it on the weekend, the tainted vote, remember, of Craig Thompson and Peter Slipper that um, yeah. the Abbott government at the time played hardball with the Gillard government, who were also in minority at that point. I mean, is Labor going to play hardball tactically? It's already signalled. It's unlikely to give Andrew Lamming a pair if he's not back in the parliament by budget week. Now, he will be, I'm sure, by hook or by crook. But, you know, how hard are they going to push on this? I think they're within their rights to push very hard. What they haven't done so far is show that they're willing to do that on the floor of Parliament. When Craig Kelly moved to the crossbench, they didn't actually... I I was surprised. I was sitting in uh, question time thinking that they would go much harder, that Labor would do what they used to do under Bill Shorten in the last Parliament, use every tactic to try and throw the government off balance. Um, Anthony Albanese seems to have a different approach to that. Uh, He hasn't played those tactical games on the floor in the same way as Bill Shorten because he's 
he's focused on the longer game. And I think there's a, there's a real uh, debate to be had about to what extent you, you use those tactical moves. All the wins on the floor of Parliament did not win Bill Shorten the election. So you've got to play the longer game and focus on the ballot that counts. And I think that's what Anthony Albanese is doing. <laughs> I think they can go harder on Andrew Lamming and the government's instability in the parliament when Craig Kelly has moved to the crossbench. But I do think that a win on the floor, even on Medivac, for instance, a win on the floor of parliament does not translate into the win that counts. Let's shift the topic, if we can, David, to another difficulty for the government. Now, I think for, and it's, a, it's a kind of irony that it's a difficulty now because it seems to me that the government's been desperate to try and shift the news agenda and the focus back onto vaccine rollout and and how uh, wonderful they are at trying to, you know, de-COVID Australia. De-COVID? Why did I say that? You know what I'm saying. Get rid of COVID. Buy COVID. Vaccinate us. But that's now turning into an absolute headache for them because the vaccination program isn't really going the way we thought it would. It's not. It's going quite badly and there's a bit of a blame game going on, some very ugly words being spoken, particularly state governments who are fed up, even a coalition state government, the New South Wales government, who's really been unhappy with the way things are going. What's going on? How could this be going wrong like this? We had so long to prepare compared to our European friends or or American friends. What's happening? I think what's happening is poor quality politicians um, panicking over a problem that's very hard to fix and resorting to blame games because that's what they know how to do best. And it's really dispiriting because the fundamental challenge has been clear for months now. We're not getting the vaccines from Europe that Europe promised us. Without that supply, all these other knock-on consequences follow. And yet instead of being upfront about that and just saying, look, this happened, we're not getting the supply, instead of having this really flowing river of vaccines. We've got this little creek with a trickle and therefore you get problems in the supply chain and you've got uncertainty about the guarantee of when that flow is going to get from one end to the other. Instead of being upfront about it, they started a really cheap blame game this week, which then infuriated the states. And I think it's it was, it was fascinating to see the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard, just get stuck into uh, the feds, mainly Greg Hunt, over this blame game. And then at the same time, we got uh, Scott Morrison on Thursday pretending that he was above it all and saying, oh, I'll let those who want to play politics uh, play politics. I won't do that. Does that include his own cabinet minister, David (laughs) Littleproud, who accused the states of doing two-thirds of bugger all (laughs) on vaccine rollout? Exactly. It was the same day that Dan Tehan and David Littleproud were getting stuck into the states. So, look, voters see through it. And it's also destructive because it undermines confidence in the vaccine rollouts. Voters see the politicians panicking. It's a shocking look. At the same time, A lot of the problems stem from those external factors. Europe stopping the shipments. CSL has not been able to manufacture enough, quickly enough. India was manufacturing vaccines at the beginning of the year and was exporting to its neighbours. At the moment, we're not manufacturing enough in Melbourne and we can't export enough to PNG. These are technical and scientific constraints on the CSL production. They're not actually a political failure but we've got this resort to the blame game 
because the politicians are so scared of just being upfront with voters and saying, this is where the numbers are at, this is why they're not as good as what we said, and this is what our revised forecast is. We're currently seeing politicians at both levels of government being totally, uh, well, obfuscating about what the vaccination numbers are. Yeah. So I don't want to excuse either level of government there, and I don't want to buy into this, the states are the victim of a federal blame game, because there are flaws at both levels of government in how it's being done. And that's true, and there was always going to be because it's the biggest, you know, post-war logistical challenge, as the Prime Minister said. But I think it's fair to say that the Prime Minister and and the other ministers are guilty of, as you say, uh, you know, over-promising and under-delivering but obfuscating around that because, yes, the supply issue was the major issue, but there does seem to be some competency issues around the rollout itself. I mean, the states are suggesting that they're getting, you know, alerted that they're going to get certain delivery of vaccine on a on a Monday. It doesn't come. It might come suddenly on the Wednesday with no warning or on a Friday, so they can't do that week's rollout in time. But, but, these are the, the these are logistical have, issues yeah, that need to be fixed. The problem the problem I have with that is, of course, there are going to be logistical problems yeah. in a rollout this big. But why does it have to blow up into a slanging match between ministers in that way? I mean. Come on, with the with the supply constraint being what it is, of course we're going to get those problems. I actually think that one of the biggest stories right now is in areas where there are clearly delineated responsibilities. Um, but that is one of those. I mean, that is a well, clearly delineated responsibility. The Commonwealth's meant to deliver the vaccine, the states roll it out. The states are saying, well, hang on, we're not getting it in any kind of ordered way. Now, I'm not saying that's, you know, a shocking, terrible thing. I'm just saying it has to be admitted and it has to be fixed. Yeah, I'm not trying to make excuses for problems in federal delivery. At the same time, if it's true that the states are holding on to vaccines because they don't think they're going to get the second dose when the whole structure is built around the feds holding those second doses and delivering them later, then there is a state problem. So mm. that's why I think I just don't want to buy into, mm. you know, oh, it's all the state's fault or it's all the feds' fault. They've got to actually work together and fix it. One area where there is a federal responsibility, and it's clearly just for the feds, is the aged care rollout. And I think you know, it's very interesting this week, my colleague Rachel Klan at the Herald and the Age reported that they're really only about halfway to where they were meant to be on the target for getting all those mobile units out to aged care facilities to do residents and staff. That's something that is clearly just the responsibility of the feds. David, just briefly, the Labor conference has been going on in the background this week. Usually that would be a huge sort of reporting event, but it says something about the times we're in that it really hasn't been. It's been happening online too, which is probably part of that story. Anthony Albanese has done a couple of things. He's unveiled a new slogan and a new advertisement and some policy too on electric vehicles and a big spending one on manufacturing policy, making things here in Australia. Uh, Scott Morrison reached back into the 2019 election handbook warning of Labor's big taxing and big spending policies and labelling Anthony Albanese as weak, too weak actually to cut JobKeeper, so trying to make a virtue of the fact that they've ended a big spending program. What does it tell us? What's, what's your analysis of what's been going on here? I think they've had a fairly m- smooth conference to um, to get themselves ready for the election. I think the focus on manufacturing and the economic recovery has been very smart for Labor to position themselves there. I'm not sure about how the $15 billion fund 
would work. It's a big dollar commitment. It seems to be taking on debt to use investments like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Whether it could return money on all those investments, it's highly theoretical, actually. But it's a message to voters that they're focused on manufacturing, they're focused on recovery and jobs. Having Richard Miles in a portfolio that is all about economic reconstruction, I think positions them well for the debate at the coming election over life after the pandemic. On a few things that they've they've been able to navigate their internal tensions, I think. On coal, for instance, they acknowledge that there's a place for fossil fuels, but they had a very strong message about electric vehicles and ramping up the adoption of EVs in Australia with some tax benefits, basically waiving some federal taxes on those EVs. That was a smart move. At the same time, they knew that all the attention was going to be on the government's problems. Yeah, this might be one week where Anthony Albanese is not so unhappy that his message isn't cutting through because (laughs) they'd like to leave all the attention on those problems with Scott Morrison's, I think. David, fabulous having you in the party room. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, as always. See you, David. See ya. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Hear, hear, the bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time, and this week's question comes from Timothy, who asks, what's the difference in responsibilities between the Treasurer and the Finance Minister? How do they split up the function of money in the government? Does the Finance Minister work for the Treasurer? Are the splits between the two clear? Mm, that's a very wonky question, Timothy. PK, over to you. Oh. I, will just, I will just say one thing. Ask Simon Birmingham, who's the finance minister, if he works for Josh Frydenberg. The answer will be no, I can tell you that. Yeah, So the and the answer is universally no, right, actually. It's a really different role. I know it's about money, but what else is government about, actually? <laughs> it's the spending of money. So you need to differentiate. Look, the Treasury, if you like, is um, a more sort of policy-functioned position in many ways, even though it's also about money. Uh, but everything's about money. If you're the, the if you're sort of the, the social services minister, that's about money too, right? That's welfare money. So the treasurer is macroeconomic. Um, you know, it's about sort of spending initiatives as well as the savings. And it's about uh, looking at how economy-wide you design a budget. The finance minister's job, it's like an accountant, wouldn't you say, Fran? It's like, like Yeah, it's... they hold the purse strings, I think it's fair to say. So the treasurer, as you say, macro, they develop tax policy. They, you know, look at surpluses and projected surpluses and deficits and GDP and unemployment figures. They're looking at, at that picture. The finance minister is looking at money in, money out. You know, we have a debt ceiling level. Are we going to hit it? They keep track of those decisions day by day. They're all on ERC. They're all useful, either one of them, if we need on our programs, PK, to talk to an (laughs) economic minister. They're both great. But that's the difference in the roles. So there is a differentiation, but they work closely together. Like you just mentioned ERC. They do work closely together, but you wouldn't say one is subordinate to the other. Having said that, at the same time, there is a hierarchy and the treasurer is the second most important position, I think, in the government. That doesn't mean, though, that the finance minister is a junior minister to the treasurer. But in terms of, like, if I was in a in a government, what job would I want? I'd be the I'd want to be the treasurer yeah. or the prime minister. Like they're yeah. the, they're the kind of jobs you want. Like they're the they're the sort of swishy special jobs in government. Finance minister, not a bad job. And then you go down the pecking order. Actually, yeah. have a few and, jobs and the, I'd like. The clue to that is um, if you're elected deputy liberal leader, you get to choose your portfolio and mostly they choose treasury. 
So that's a clue that it's a very uh, high-profile sought-after job. Yeah, that's right. Hey, we love getting your questions, so send them in. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And if you haven't already, you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app or on your favourite podcast app. It's time, folks. It's time. It is time. It's always time. That's it from The Party Room this week. We'll be back in your feeds on April the 15th. Write it down, put it in your diary after a brief break where we will, don't worry, even though I'm going a little break, I'm, you know, can't help myself. I'll be on it, don't worry. And I'll be able to share with you what I think's going on. You're always on it. See you, Pika. Happy Easter, everybody. I hope the Bilby or the Bunny comes to you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.